Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest pursues teaching and writing, and he's passionate about both. Elon Stavins has written several books, including most recently Jewish Literature, a very short introduction published by Oxford University Press, and How Yiddish Changed America and How America Changed Yiddish, published by Restless Books. Both are available at Amazon and all the usual places. Elon Stavins is the Lewis Sebring Professor of Humanities, Latin American and Latino Culture at Amherst College. He's also the publisher of Restless Books and a consultant to the Oxford English Dictionary. For everything about Elon Stavins, go to restlessbooks.org and you can follow him on Twitter at Elon Stavins. Professor Elon Stavins, welcome to the show and we'll talk abyssal. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be to be in the in your show. Thank you. How did you decide you obviously wrote the book, but before writing the book, what initially gave you the sense that Yiddish and America changed each other? I am a Mexican Jew, Ira, and for me, Yiddish played a fundamental role in the shaping of my identity. I went to Yiddish schools from a, almost kindergarten to high school. And it, I, I was always struck when visiting cousins in the U.S., in Long Island, in, in different neighborhoods, Skokie and Chicago and elsewhere, that Yiddish did not play a similar role for them in my generation. I was born in the early 60s in that it somehow had faded. So I began to be attracted to the idea of Yiddish as a kind of punching bag or maybe an arc through which we can understand, or a mirror through which we can understand ourselves, whereas Yiddish in Argentina, in South Africa, in Canada, in Mexico City, played an important role in the generation of not only the immigrants that came from the Pale of Settlement, Eastern Europe, and the children that they had, but in their grandchildren, that would be my generation. It wasn't the same thing in America, which by, in the end was the biggest magnet of immigration together with Palestine. And so I, I became really more than fascinated, obsessed with the question of the role that Yiddish had played in helping in the assimilation of American Jews into mainstream society. This would be the Jews of Canada, the Jews of Latin America, the Jews of other parts of the world, particularly of the Americas, and in what way that Yiddish language had become a fixture of humor, cuisine, movies, theater, music, etc. What had been sacrificed along the way? In what, in what sense was Yiddish the glue that allowed for the immigrants and their, and their children to enter the door of what the Statue of Liberty was welcoming them to with that golden torch? And how the language itself, once they were in, had become a casualty, being put on the side, ostracized, maybe eclipsed, but also how Yiddish had remained alive, has remained alive, and is a subject of deep interest, maybe nostalgia is the right word, by those that did not grow up with Yiddish that now want to recover, reposition it, link themselves to it. Maybe, maybe, Ira, we Jews, we American Jews, now I have spent half of my life in the U.S., half of my life in Mexico, maybe American Jews sacrificed too much in the process of becoming Americans. And there is a desire now to return to some some 
aspect of the past in Yiddish is the key. And your book covers a wide range of approaches. It's not just what one would think a symmetrical or progressive approach from A to Z. It's more a mix of interesting essays, and then there's the part about Hollywood and the discussion of Bono Park. One of the fascinating things I found in your book was Yiddish as a language, it's one of those languages that did not have a government backing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, maybe that's why it survives to this day, because it's so fluid, as opposed to, I think Americans in general would not necessarily adopt Hebrew phrases through the culture, but Yiddish phrases through the culture seem to work and are accepted by people of all religions and all backgrounds. Is, is that fair? Yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely fair. Um, I would say that every language is not only a syntax, a grammar, a lexicon. Every language is also the memory of the people that have used it. It's a, it's a museum, and it is also a community center, and it is also a, an airport where people land and take off. But mostly also a language is an address, the address of that people in a particular time and place in history. And what Yiddish doesn't have compared to others, compared to other Jewish languages, and Jews are are incredible language-making machines in history. Jews have produced arguably more languages than any other group maybe 30, 50 different languages, from Hebrew to Yiddish to Ladino to Judeo-Italian to Judo-Persian, etc., is that Yiddish doesn't have a flag. It doesn't have a central bank. It doesn't have a post office. It doesn't have a national anthem. Yiddish is, unlike Hebrew, it is a landless language. And I fully agree with you, that is in part why it has survived. That is also in part why it was so vulnerable to the elements of history being forced to to surrender its own dignity with this in the Second World War being pushed to almost total annihilation. Yeah, it is a language that is diasporic. It goes from one place to another and it has survived almost in spite of, of everything. One of the interesting parts of your book, you talk about a gentleman whose mission was to go around and collect all the Yiddish books he could find throughout, I don't know if it was the world, but certainly the United States, and preserve it. And that's an amazing feat for one person to start, but he he accomplished it. Yes. That that man is Aaron Lansky. He was young and recently out of college when he stumbled upon this idea of, of gathering in one place the dispersed Yiddish language books that, that the immigrant generation was disposing of because they, that generation was dying or they had no more uh, room for them. Or, and he thought that this was another way of uh, allowing the Nazis to, or, or the enemies to bring down the language. And he, with U-Hauls and other trucks, started rescuing the books and concentrating them in one place where people later on could go and visit them. You know, Yiddish era has a, has, is, is a, it's, Yiddish has always created these extreme personalities. 
people that become obsessed with politics or people that become obsessed with certain aspects of the culture. One way or another, Yiddish is a gallery of types, of lexicographers, of individuals of all backgrounds, of, of collectors that have enabled the language to uh, survive, but have also used Yiddish as a platform to become fluent in the devoted to other causes, political causes, ideological causes, literary causes, film and theater causes. Yiddish is, is really a, a kind of a, it's like, it's like a, a web of connections that uh, you start with somebody who was, who was doing something in Yiddish and then you find out they became a huge star, a celebrity in something else. Yiddish, Yiddish kind of propelled them forward. It's so funny, too, because there are people that you wouldn't think knew Yiddish, and perfect example is Colin Powell, who yeah. grew up working for, I believe it was a store, and he learned Yiddish from the store owners. And so, again, it's this fluid language that just moves around to all kinds and of... It, and it's not only, as you said, spoken by, by Jews and Yiddish-speaking Jews, but by African-Americans. I have gone to tailors who are Asian, who speak a little Yiddish, or to Puerto Ricans that speak a little Yiddish. Uh, you don't have to be Jewish to speak Yiddish. You have to be a Yiddish, <laughs> a, a Yiddish connected person to do so. <laughs> I never thought about it this way before, but it's almost a fun language in this sense that it is so readily accepted by people who are not necessarily Jewish or don't speak Hebrew, but Yiddish just seems to be fun. I mentioned to you before the show that I remember walking down a hall in a hotel talking with someone, and out of nowhere, the end of my sentence was punctuated by a Yiddish word, which I hadn't thought about in 30 or 40 years. And I have no idea where it came from. And I actually stopped dead in my tracks. I, I said, where did that come from? It just yeah. was there. <laughs> and yeah. so that's how because that I seems think to that work. you're calling attention is also that not only is it a spread uh, with different bastions in our society, but it is also in our subconscious. I think for the Jewish people, Yiddish is is something, the sediment of a lot of what we do. It it enables us to to connect with different aspects of our our own personal lives in ways that are magical and often unexplained. Uh, they are simply there. A word will come out. And there, you know, this happens in every language. There are words that in a particular language that no matter the fact or in spite of the fact that there, there might be an equivalent in another language for that very same word, just saying it in Yiddish just feels so zaftic. It feels <laughs> like you have chutzpah, that, that you can go back to it. Um, and I don't know what the definition of the OED for, would be for chutzpah, <laughs> but I think chutzpah in and of itself is its own definition. <laughs> True. It, it sounds like it's a connective tissue. It is. In terms yeah. of the way you describe it. It's fascinating. You also write that some see Yiddish not only as a language, but as a metaphor. Why is that? Because I think Yiddish is an enduring metaphor of survival. It is a language that has been around for over a thousand years. There was Yiddish before the Canterbury Tales. There was Yiddish before Shakespeare wrote Macbeth. There was Yiddish as a Napoleon Bonaparte was in his big wars and as he himself was being imprisoned. Yiddish has been a companion of modernity, of the Enlightenment. Yiddish has been around for quite some time, but it, it has always been always a, a 
on the verge of disappearing because of systematic destruction in the hands of its enemies, but, but also the other big upheaval of the end of the 19th century and first half of the 20th century, immigration. Immigration, Yiddish was the companion of the Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe to the rest of the world, but it was also the casualty because once they settled in different places, what we were saying at the beginning of the, of the podcast, they felt maybe because of practical reasons, that they didn't need Yiddish anymore, that now they had English, or in, in, in through, in, from English or through English, other languages, French and German and Italian and Spanish. But, uh, but Yiddish is a kind of Latin. It, it connects you with a past that tells you a lot about literature, about history, about psychology. And in that sense, I see it as a metaphor. It's a symbol of survival of the Jewish people, of a particular brand of the Jewish people, that uh, no matter how close it comes to the abyss, it bounces back and is ready to start again. What was the most surprising thing you found in your research for the book? The most surprising thing, Ara, was, on the one hand, the panoply of possibilities of Yiddish, it, the vitality, the 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 endurance, the the fact that it's an umbrella for so many different things, not only Jewish, but worldly. And the other thing is that it, it looked with the creation of the State of Israel in 1948 that Yiddish really had had its day, that there wasn't going to be a, an address for it in the future. Zionism had won. The Holocaust had decimated the six million in, in Eastern Europe. Immigration had pushed Yiddish to the background with English becoming the dominant language of American Jews. And then what I found out is that Yiddish today has a kind of neutrality that people are happy to engage in. Whereas many of us lovers of Israel who have an ongoing debate with the Israeli government because of its approaches to this or that aspect of its neighbors, Yiddish doesn't come with that baggage. It does. It's not political in that sense. It's not explosive. It was very explosive at another time. It was very much connected with socialism, communism, and anarchism, and nihilism. And today it is connected with the Orthodox, with the Babichers, with the Hasidim, Etc. who see Yiddish in a particular way that the secular Jews might not see it just like that. But it doesn't have the, it is not injected, it is not burdened by the politics or the ideology that it was at another time or that other languages, Jewish languages are today. And as a result, people find it a neutral space to engage with one another. I found that to be really extraordinary. I got that sense from the book. In fact, you quote the Wall Street Journal had their first ever headline in Yiddish in yeah. 1991. And the idea of the Wall Street Journal publishing something in Yiddish, it's very funny to begin with. But then they had chutzpah, so why not? Let them do it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that was in 1991 when Isaac Zinger died, the only so far Yiddish language writer who received the award in Stockholm. And as a tribute, they had a headline in Yiddish, which is a beautiful 
kind of return or bounce back of immigration, being that Yiddish had now almost disappeared by that moment. How important was it in your research, or perhaps just a nod in their direction, how important was the Yiddish Book Center, and how important is the Yiddish Book Center in a global perspective? The Yiddish Book Center, for me, is a temple to Jewish culture. I, I think the word temple is the one that fits the most comfortable to me. I live literally two miles away. I teach at Amherst College, and I accepted the job almost 30 years ago, in large part because I knew the Yiddish Book Center was just in my neighborhood, and I could I could go there and, and buy books, or I could go there and, and, and listen to lectures. And in time, I became a part of the Yiddish Book Center, too, in all sorts of projects that I have. I'm very fortunate to have now also been involved in many of the projects that the Yiddish Book Center has done. The Yiddish Book Center is extraordinary because it is the ground zero where a lot of research on Yiddish can be done, together with YIVO, the, another very important institution committed to Yiddish based in New York City and in Buenos Aires. It has other, other branches as well. I feel that the, the way they, that the Yiddish Book Center has engaged with Yiddish culture has been very forward-looking. It is not only about recovering the past, but about pushing Yiddish culture into a new generation, into a new century, I am committed and convinced that that is what we need to be doing. And, and so I feel that, uh, that an institution like that, uh, now already 40 years in the book, How Yiddish Changed America and How America Changed Yiddish, is kind of a, a valedictorian present for in its 40th anniversary. It's, it's, uh, it's an institution that, uh, that is fostering new ways of doing research, new fellows, new uh, retrospectives on movies, but also sponsoring projects that, that would be movies and, and concerts done in the future. It's, it's, as I hope it's clear to your listeners, an institution that I adore. You mentioned movies and concerts, and Yiddish played a very big part in the theater, the Yiddish theater. And today people go, well, what is the Yiddish theater? And yet it was a vibrant very popular form of entertainment. Absolutely. You know, we have been called, uh, in this I, this is a, a leitmotif era in my other book, Jewish Literature, a very short introduction. And I want to talk we a little have, about that at, towards the end, too. By all means. Uh, we have been called the people of the book for clear and uh, tangible reasons. It is a book that uh, we've been carrying from one diaspora to another, but we have been the people of the stage and the people of the moving image and now the people of the graphic novel and of the children's book. And theater, Yiddish theater came with a vengeance at the, at the end of the 19th century throughout the first half of the 20th century. Many stand-up comedians, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Seed Caesar, started in Yiddish theater or were connected in one way or another to Yiddish theater. Most, most of the the early generation in Hollywood of actors, screenwriters, directors was connected with Yiddish theater as well. Many of them uh, had done Yiddish theater before and then were switching or continued to do Yiddish theater. Um, it's very important also to remember that theater was not a fixture and a feature of Jewish life until the 19th century because of the prohibition against idolatry 
we did not have in the 17th century and 16th century a theater of our own. But when we discovered theater in Eastern Europe and in other parts of Europe in the 19th century, it seemed that we, we embraced it wholeheartedly. And, and of course, today you can't think of American theater without thinking of writers that have been Jewish, like Arthur Miller, like Tony Kushner, uh, Wendy Wasserstein, are uh, staples of American theater, and many of them deeply connected, at least as admirers, but but also as a as a more closely linked with Yiddish theater before. If you look at the scope of anti-Semitism, everybody seems to be united, whether you're rich, poor, black, white, right, left, politically. It's easy to go after Jews for some reason. I never understood that, but they all seem to be, it all seems to be the uniform theme at one point or another in history. But Yiddish doesn't seem to be a focus of attack for anti-Semites. Why is that? Oh, I don't think that you're right. Yiddish was very much a public Well, perhaps, it, maybe I'll take it back, Your Honor. Uh, I'll, read, I'll withdraw, <laughs> I'll withdraw my, my, uh, my question and put it a different way. In the 20th century, perhaps, maybe that'd be a better way to do it. And certainly I mean, after, after I, I, World maybe War II. in the 21st century. After World War II, 20s, right. After World War II. Yeah. Yeah, you know, after World War II, I frankly don't know of many languages, I could count them with my hand, that have suffered the fate of Yiddish in the hands of anti-Semites uh, uh, with the Nazis. But after the Second World War, maybe there was a, a, a timeout, a, an opportunity for Yiddish to... Not many speakers left, but an, an opportunity of, of, for Yiddish not to be again the target. But it remains a language that is conflicted and conflicting among the, the Hasidim, for instance. There's a lot of early on in the creation of the state of Israel, there was a systematic rejection by Zionists of Yiddish as the language of the diaspora, the language that personify the vulnerable, hunchbacked, long-nosed Jew that needed to be kind of put away in favor of the new Zionist man, the Jew that the, the, the Jewish state was going to bring. I, be, I think it's just a respite. There's always another chapter. Yiddish, who knows where it's going to go? There's going to be somebody against it. You know, I, maybe I'll bring here a famous quote by Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the French philosopher, who wrote a book around the idea that anti-Semites hate Jews, they need Jews, but that Jews also need anti-Semites in order to live. That, that this force of being antagonized pushes us Jews to prove ourselves even stronger in, in a more marked way. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't discard the possibility of another aggressive attempt against Yiddish, but for now, I'm happy to agree with you that it's living a, it's so-called fictional golden age well, without I, speakers and without anti-Semites coming up. I think I misspoke in this sense that because you wrote this book about the effect of Yiddish on America and the effect of America on Yiddish, I was taking the, the short view, but positioning it as a long view. So I was mistaken, as I occasionally am and admit. <laughs> no, no. So there you go. Hey, before I let you go, I want to talk a little about your other book, which is called Jewish Literature, A Very Short Introduction. It's published by Oxford University Press. Give us a little capsule in a couple of minutes what that's about. Yeah, it, the, the, this book is an attempt to do something that uh, at first sight looks simple, but, you know, it's, it's, it's daunting. 
Jewish literature is very difficult to define. Whereas you can say that Mark Twain and John Opdyke and Philip Roth and Maxim Honkiston are all American writers because they were born in America. They speak English. They have written about America and, and in the English language. Jewish writers can write in many different languages, can live in many different countries, can sometimes not even write about Jewish topics and be Jewish writers. Like Kafka in his novels never uses the word Jew. Yet one would, I would argue that it's, it, it's, he's a very Jewish writer. So the, this book emerges from the desire to try to understand what brings together Jewish writers that are very different from one another in very heterogeneous parts of the world, and yet they have a common sensibility, uh, something that they share. And maybe in that sense, we could talk about a tradition that goes from Sholem Aleichem writing what was the source of Fiddler on the Roof, to Philip Roth writing a novel like The Human Stain, to an Israeli writer today, or Isaac Bashev Zinger. All very different writers, very different languages, and yet all connected somehow by the same kind of tissue. Fascinating. Well, I'm going to read that one next. <laughs> My guest has been Ilan Savins. He's author of Jewish Literature, A Very Short Introduction, published by Oxford University Press, and How Yiddish Changed America and How America Changed Yiddish, published by Restless Books. Both are available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Ilan Savins, go to restlessbooks.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Ilan Stavins. Ilan, thanks for being on the show. It's been a pleasure with the Everything Bagel and the Everything Ira. <laughs> I've appreciated and grown Ah, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Zygazut. And uh, join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.